0: Namaste, motherfuckers, and welcome to Tantric Conversation, episode number 43. Bijan Chodabande. I think I got that right. Um, It's a little bit of a tongue twister, and it comes with a
1: sound. Bijan is a really cool guy. I
0: I met him at Christopher Irving's birthday party, and uh, he was introduced to me as a Illustrator and a comic book artist, but we ended
1: up talking. We had a tantric conversation at that party. We talked pretty much the entire time. I was there about philosophy, politics, spirituality, mythology, all that good stuff. I had a really nice um, dialogue. I kind of wish the microphones had been there. This conversation was good, but what's, uh, I think, one of the things that's really illustrative about. Vizhan is he is a man of convictions
0: but he listened to me talk a bunch of shit out of my ass for quite some time uh, during that conversation. I mean I listened to it and I'm like I don't know what I was talking about in some places but it is what it
1: is and uh, part of this project of turning on the mics is documenting what happens when people talk and sometimes I find
0: myself talking about things I had no idea I wanted to talk about, so I imagine or I assume that it's uh, meant to be heard somehow,
1: and somebody's going to get something out of it. Um,
0: I uh, I know that this stuff, and I've, I've said this before, I know some of this stuff is, I come off, uh, I'm shooting from the hip, half cocked, half baked,
1: don't uh, always <coughs> have a lot of uh, facts at my fingertips. But I'm just, uh, I am uh, attempting to be honest in how I perceive and some things and some of the ideas that occur to me, I'm married to them, Uh, there are a lot of rough sketches, interesting to put them out there as a framework for a conversation and see what happens. Um, And this isn't really a disclaimer as much as a like, um, yes it is, I think it is, but I don't want to, I don't want to get rid of it. I could because I got the power of the edit I can go through here and chop this shit out but hopefully it's valuable to somebody who listens to it anyway Bajan's cool we talked for like 2 hours and 17 minutes so I found a spot to stop it about an hour or so in and uh, I'm going to post the second part later this week um, yeah it's got it has really been and I said this last time it's been really hard for me to settle down and Post these things. It's not like it's a lot of work, but it it takes some kind of a mental space I got to be in to get into it. But I uh, treated myself to some new equipment, so that that's inspired me a bit. I've recorded quite a few more of these. I, in addition to the second part of the Bijan conversation, I've got um, Ray Bullock, comedian, stand-up comedian, and MC and organizer
0: of the 955 Club, a long-running Richmond comedy showcase, open mic kind of thing that's been going on for about 15 years on, all over town. And then I have Joanne, um, god damn Joanne I don't know your last name right now at the top of my head
1: of Auntie mag fame. She and I are friends, we've been talking a long time. She actually loaned me a microphone that I just started using because I just got a board that could provide phantom power. And we had a cool conversation, so that's coming up. A bunch of them coming up, and trying to record more of them. Um, I'm still into this, and I still want to do it. And uh, you know, um, it's all about juggling. So, you guys, before I uh, knock this off, I just want to encourage you to get out of the uh, out of your uh, usual stomping grounds and travel around this greater Richmond area. I have to do it for my job, and and I constantly am finding. You know, it's kind of like that abandoned Richmond sentiment, but these places aren't abandoned. People are still using them, and there are interesting pockets of life, like those little amoeba swimming around in tidal pools. they are little cultural tidal pools all over the central Virginia
0: tri-city area, whatever you call it. I was in Hopewell today... And I went to two little diners down there that are right near the old factories, and little great little spots, you know, like that that
1: road food, you know. I, I went into this one joint and had these chili dogs
0: with the works, and hung out and talked to the people, and uh, was and dug it. I was enriched by those dogs and those folks in old creepy old Hopewell. So I encourage you go on a road trip.
1: Also, I just noticed that bike path that runs along Route 5. That's pretty awesome. I don't know where it starts, but I'm going to get on that thing one of these days. So you're gonna getting on something. Um, we're going to get on Bijan, and he's just
0: talking about Goga and Van Gogh here in the beginning. And we listen to him for a bit before I start talking. Namaste.
2: He would uh, draw from his head. He'd go someplace, and then he'd come back home and, and paint it. Um, I guess paint, not draw. And Van Gogh couldn't do that. He always had to have the subject in front of him, and it became uh, this great frustration for him. The one time that he didn't do this from reference was Starry Night. Cause he's in, he was in a mental institution, and he painted that from memory, and so in a way, his last piece, last masterpiece, one of the most famous pieces, is also the piece that he finally was able to paint without seeing things from life. I really dig dig Van Gogh's work. I really enjoy it. Seeing it in person though is kinda weird. And uh, there's some less notable paintings that I saw that I wasn't a big fan of and it's interesting because you forget, especially as a creative, the stuff that we're getting quite often is the, the best of the best of these artists. You know, and he painted, you know, almost a, I believe it was almost a painting a day um, not an art historian so I, I, I don't trust myself with how accurate that is but when you think about how many paintings somebody paints drawing a day all, their entire life right and then and then we know like what do you know like five five right. like Van Gogh pieces <laughs> it's like the yeah. best of those hundreds of paintings that he made and uh, that's why it's so unapproachable and it seems so unfathomable to get to that you know to with those kind of expectations you set for yourself you don't realize that you know, Right. That you're going to do hundreds of pieces potentially and. And
1: it it may be what, who, yeah, who knows if it's even a fraction, right, that anybody will remember if you're lucky. Or, or see,
2: or, you know, and there'll be only maybe a fraction that you enjoy yourself, you Mm -hmm. know, and that's why you keep making them, you know,
1: but. That is an interesting conundrum about any kind of creative pursuit because their creativity is generally taken hand in hand with the idea of performance or a reception or audience or, you know, somebody seeing it. Yeah. And they're not really the same thing. You know, like, pleasing an audience and being creative aren't the same thing. They can go together. You can make art that is that is received by an audience and you can be a very creative, talented artist who also is enjoyed by people. But... Um, you don't necessarily have to be enjoyed by people to be a perfectly. I mean, to be what an artist is, like you know, to create art is really a end th- uh, in of itself. I would say, but we tend to think of it as only valuable if it's you know noticed or remembered. Right, right. Yeah. The pro
2: the process is sometimes much more important for the fulfillment of the individual than than the final piece. Of course, that becomes problematic for people like comedians. I don't right. I don't envy them at all where right. the response of the audience is is directly tied to to the work that they're doing. Mm-hmm. I mean you of course they're writing outside of the context of the audience, but if the audience isn't responsive, you know, in some ways I feel like it's just a little bit different.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I think it's I definitely think it's almost entirely different. Like, if those, if they were happy just writing, cause that's really what they are as writers. Yeah, exactly. You know, if they were happy just writing, then they would do that, but they're not, they need that reception. <laughs> like, they, they need the feedback. They need the immediate feedback from, Saying something and then having somebody either laugh or, I mean, that's what they want them to do laugh or, or clap or do something. They need some kind of response. Yeah. You know, immediate gratification. And then if they know? don't,
2: they have to, they have to respond to the audience. So it's right. like this nice push and pull.
1: Right. They're going to rewrite everything they wrote until they get it to do yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Or
2: like while they're, or while they're reciting it, which I thought was really interesting. That reminds me of a uh, great analogy by a friend of mine. It's an old band from, uh, not that old, but, I guess in Richmond time, bands break up and get yeah, back together yeah. so, so often. But it was this band called Tiger Bomb and they did a acoustic beats to hip hop vocals. Mm-hmm. And they had this song where they talk about the push and the pull, uh, comparing the audience to the ocean and themselves as the moon. Mm-hmm. It was this really nice metaphor yeah. about that relationship to the audience that they have.
1: And does that, so for you as a, uh, you are a visual artist. Um you work in the comic medium, is that what you would call it or that,
2: I'd say I feel most passionately doing doing that, but I also do illustration, I do graphic design. You know mm-hmm. it's still still visual. People would debate whether or not commercial work is art, but I don't I don't really see those distinctions being that that big of an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh well,
1: yeah, and the, I guess once the finished product of a comic book seems so serial, I mean, you, you don't even linger a lot of times, at least I don't when I'm reading them on the individual panels, but each individual panel is a work of art, right? Especially in the way that you go about it.
2: De- definitely. I'm trying to, for myself, I'm trying to go about it a little bit less and mm-hmm. seeing the page as a whole, mm-hmm. as a piece, and uh, I think that's... That can be an issue for people who are starting out as, uh, starting with a comic, starting to try to, uh, tackle that medium. Because you focus, if you focus on each panel as an individual piece, you're gonna find that you're never gonna finish the comic. Yeah. You're just gonna spend too much time on each one.
1: Yeah. So there's somewhere in between the, uh, you know, just totally, uh, relaxing about the rendition and getting at the narrative. And, but not getting to the point of it's like stick figures. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But (laughs) finding something you can flow in that doesn't hold you up when you're worried about the detail of the drawing, it stops the narrative, stops the story. Yeah, and 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 also,
2: sorry, excuse me. No, no, go ahead. And also the time constraints. Mm -hmm. But that depends. Like, thankfully, with the work that I do, for the most part, I'm my own um, boss. I I don't, I've occasionally, I've had people, uh, commission me to do some work, but right now, um, most of my work is done on my own timeline. I couldn't imagine what it would be like to be on the, uh, the timeline of people that are working for DC or Marvel or any, or Oni or any, any serial based comic for a larger company. But in those cases too, they have, you gotta think they have like, you know, five or so people working on the comic. Yeah. There. There's one person doing the pencils, one person doing the ink, one person coloring, one person doing lettering, one person doing cover, one person editing, one person writing. You know, in in many cases, I'm doing them all except for my current project. I, I do have a writer, but the the inks, pencils, colors, and, and lettering are all me.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like the the writer's room for all of these guys. You kind of, uh, you know, somebody like Conan O'Brien, you know, you see do a show every night. And it just looks like he's up there telling jokes effortlessly. Yeah, by like, himself. Just and there's like, you know, 20 guys that were writing jokes for that, you know, all day long or all week, you know, and like hundreds of them, like everybody's going to turn in 50 jokes so that they can get, you know, one monologue and, and, and like, but the finished product looks like one guy did it, you know, and comic books are that you assume sort of that there's really kind of one person behind it, but yeah, something like Marvel, it's a army. Yeah, people, yeah right
2: mm-hmm. not always but yeah quite often that's the case because when you're doing it the thing is that they have 23 to you know 27 pages pens on the comic and um, the pencils alone depending on how detailed you're illustrating the comic could take a full work day and so there's no way you can physically complete it without those people depending on your style you know the the more that the style approaches realism the right. more time consuming it's going to be who would, that's
1: re- realism is an interesting term to apply to i mean because I, I i would think you were thinking about somebody like i don't know like a neil adams who is very detailed and how he yeah draws exactly human anatomy that's why i say that,
2: approaching realism right you know they're not they're not da vinci but they're not you know at the same time they're not um they're not doing uh, garfield
1: yeah know? They're definitely not Da Vinci because a lot of their figures wouldn't fit into that, uh, man that Da Vinci drew in the. No, yeah, it
2: wouldn't be the correct proportions. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of, (laughs) they're pretty jacked up by comparison.
1: Yeah. There's some people that are absurd. I mean, they're like, they're, they're, they're drawing super detailed but it, it, incredibly exaggerated bodies like impossible bodies like yeah tiny waists huge but we would call that realistic because they're going for such a level of detail in the musculature and
2: yeah exactly all that and yeah a lot of people joke about the 90s there's this time period in comics where people were adding muscles that weren't even that didn't even that yeah. people had like 20 20- twenty packs, you know, yeah, things like yeah. that.
1: <laughs> and still no visible genitalia. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's no bulge in their spandex. It's just flat. <laughs> for it for the men at least. For the for the women, their genitalia was over exaggerated. Right. I mean, you had breasts that were, you know, twice the size of people's of their heads. Ridiculous.
1: It's a weird thing about comics and, and party, one of the reasons why it's difficult to for there's always this sort of like uh defensiveness around them being taken seriously as as narrative art as literature as whatever you want to call it um that they aren't considered outside of comic books is because so many people who are drawn to them are drawn to total fantasy and are frustrated people with reality you know they're yeah. they're people who aren't enjoying reality they're they're going to comic books to have things happen that don't happen in real life not just people flying around but like you know somebody like them getting the girl or whatever like you know and and what what is being fed by a lot of comic art is is more of that like let's create more illusion and let's play to some really specific drives you know like sex drive kind of stuff that like all the women have huge gravity defying breasts and you know they've all got like the same build because that's what the, most of these guys were reading comic books like i mean there's a, like a lot of frustrated adolescent dudes out there that are into comic books and you're not one of them i'm not one of them but there's a whole lot of comics that pander to yeah that.
2: cater to that demographic but yeah. i feel like that's changing thank thankfully so because you know it's not it's not healthy, in my opinion, to to ha- have things that way. And and I think that it also, you know, it depends on the writer, it depends on the artist, whether or not it is fine literature or it is lowbrow. But I have I have trouble saying that. I I don't want to put myself in a bad corner because one famous quote of um Mark Twain's actually that I I enjoy is something along the lines of comparing uh. Of saying that some people like wine, some people like water, and he compares his writing to water, mm-hmm. and says everybody drinks water. Yeah, and and in that way, he was kind of saying that there's there's an importance to that existing.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I've I've always ag- agreed with that too. Because the stuff that I was drawn to when I was a English major and like a literature major was more pop novelist kind of stuff that i mean they got big ideas across but got it across in the guise of something a little more accessible you know not um not high art not not necessarily literature um i i even i wrote a paper about tom robbins called the i think it was called the importance of being a pop novelist Uh Uh, because my teachers didn't take him seriously and he was like my favorite writer in college (laughs) and but i mean there's so i mean there's a good reason why comic books alienate some people because of that you know but of course the medium is huge now there's there's lots of different you know uh, approaches even to a superhero type story that doesn't necessarily play into those stereotypes right
2: and and i think that's really something that's specific to the united states that's one thing that's kind of interesting so Historically, there was this, there's this time period when there was a very diverse array of subject matter in comics. And you had them catering to a demographic that was a little bit older than it's perceived now. You had a lot of horror, mystery, detective, a lot of, and, and pulp comics too. Mm-hmm. There's pulp writers doing comics. Um, and what happened was parents, uh, in the United States got really upset and said, you're corrupting our youth. And they mm. started burning you know, comics, just like they did with rock and roll, they were burning records. And what happened was before the government would regulate comics, there was this institution created called the Comics Code Authority. Oh, yeah. And the Comics Code Authority had specifications, which a lot of people considered to be arbitrary based mm-hmm. on what would be allowed and what wouldn't be allowed. But they kind of uh, killed the hopes of having a diverse array of comics. And what ended up happening was you predominantly were saying... Superhero comics that were basically propaganda because it's right. around World War II time period. And then you had, uh, you had, um, uh, in the funnies, and mm-hmm. that's all we were left with. Meanwhile, places. Captain
1: America and the Cats and Jammer Kids. Yeah, right? yeah,
2: exactly. So, so then the, uh, but in Japan and in Europe, that never happened. Mm-hmm. And when you look at comics there, there's so much more diversity in subject matter that's that's uh dense you know we still have a lot of diversity in the united states but it's not it's not to that level like you don't see a whole bunch of people doing um doing these uh drama uh filled comics or these like self-referential or autobiographical comics you don't see the same kind of level of sophistication on a on a widespread scale in and in a higher um i guess a higher uh standard that people are desiring that, that are required of the artist though the cartoonist so mm-hmm. it it leaves us with a lot a lot better you know a, a larger amount of quality quality work mm-hmm. how did
1: you get well first of all say your say your name for me your last name it's a
2: Khurabande. Khurabande. yeah it's I'm like you're hacking a loogie.
1: I'm glad I didn't <laughs> try it. <laughs> Bizan khorebande.
2: Yeah, Bijan, Bijan khorebande.
1: Bijan khorebande. Yeah. And that name's origin is
2: It's a, it's Persian.
1: It's Persian. And did you ever live in uh the country of origin?
2: No, I never yeah. I never lived in Iran. I was born I was actually born in DC and I grew up in a in a suburb of DC and then Which um, one? Uh Springfield, oh yeah,
1: my aunt and uncle live on Sidon Stricker Road. In Springfield. <laughs> you know where that is? I know where
2: that is, but it's hard for me to visualize it's been now it's been more than fifteen years. I feel like since i've you know since I've lived in Springfield, so many things are changing, and i don't I don't go there as often as I probably should to visit my parents but uh yeah, at this point, I'd consider myself a Richmonder mm-hmm. but it's interesting because you know and that and that's um
1: how did your parents end up in?
2: in springfield yeah well it's kind of funny because a lot of people just assume that i'm 100 percent persian but right. my my mom's side of the family they're actually uh of a uh, scottish and german descent mm. they're all um they're all you know we joke they're all hillbillies in west mm-hmm. virginia <laughs> which they, they do live in the mountains and it's mm-hmm. a very small town in west virginia yeah in west virginia my uh my uncle lives uh near my grandparents and he he had a uh fishing and uh, hunting shop for a while and would set up people's bows and arrows he does a lot of hunting himself he train dogs um my gr- and they they have their own little farm um not not a large one like you would expect you know it's one enough for the stay in the family right you right. know and sometimes when we go up there we help them harvest and and uh, shoot guns and all those fun things that you could do in west virginia <laughs> it's a beautiful place but it's but it's interesting so i have a father who's from iran who grew up there um and then i and uh his side of the family my grandfather was a is actually a pretty interesting fellow he was a sufi which is a kind of like a muslim mystic mm-hmm. he's also the number one wrestler uh in the country for uh this traditional style of iranian wrestling and he also was a, a mechanical engineer this is your grandfather My grandfather so he had all these levels wow it's really really mind-blowing you don't you don't usually ex- see a See the number one wrestler also being—you think of him as a mechanical engineer mm-hmm. and uh, and a and a mystic. <laughs> Those two things I can put
1: together uh, before the Sufi mysticism, but I I didn't even know that existed until fairly recently. I was watching a TED talk, and I I like the ones that are about spirituality, I uh-huh. guess, or you know, behavioral stuff that really sounds like spirituality, like Brene Brown talking about vulnerability, but there was a Sufi mystic on there and he was talking about Rumi and he was saying that like, you know, in its essence, like Islam is, is just as compassionate, um, a belief in spirituality as Buddhism and Christianity is supposed to be, you know, that, that, that really is the, and he was reciting all of this Rumi poetry that was illustrating that. And I never, I'd never had the experience of hearing that kind of stuff, you know, coming from someone from, you know, related to Islam, you know, because of of course the, you know, the stereotype and the, and the you know the just the vast that's all the fundamentalist stuff is what you hear most of the time. Which is the same way with Christianity. The people who are squawking the loudest are the ones that are outside abortion clinics and
2: you yeah. Know. And it's also you also We also I feel like as human beings, we we remember the negative more than we remember the positive that we experience. I think. It, I think. I forget what the statistic is. It's something like you have to hear like 20 positive things to outweigh one negative thing. Yeah. And so when somebody trolls, you know, and that's why trolling on, on a websites is so successful because that one person that says that one negative thing can yeah. start a chain reaction. And, um, which is unfortunate, but
1: yeah, people really need to be okay. right. And, and like if they get stoked up on the internet, there's no place that they seems like they get, more worked up and more obsessive about arguing points and <laughs> needing to be right, you know, just, and, and, and so, so seldom is it really communication. It's just a whole lot of people like putting stuff up on the wall, you know, and yeah. like not, not much give and take, just a, uh, just spray paint, you know, just a tag, you know, this is my ego. These are my grudges. These are my resentments and, you know, they're going here, witness them
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's one-sided dialogue, yeah, even when there are a bunch of
1: people posting about the same thing, most of the time somebody is they're they're just lit up and and righteous about something, and they're not even reading the other comments except as fuel,
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes you'll see two people having a conversation and then just random people interjecting their two their two cents, usually in a unconstructive manner. Yeah. And
1: I'm really, I mean, I guess one of the reasons that I like to do this is because I'm trying to work on myself, like having a conversation and having a viewpoint and not being so attached to it that it makes me upset (laughs) that if somebody's not getting it, you know, and not be upset by hearing viewpoints that I don't agree with, you know, like to really have like an actual logical conversation and listen to somebody who I just totally disagree with. Which Uh is not often like in, in this. I'm usually advising kind of like-minded people, but other places I practice listening to conservatives who I think are just, you know, mongering and baiting and, and try not to get upset about it and just really listen to the, the, what, what is of value in what they're saying, if anything. Yeah. And,
2: And I think that's important because, um, there's this term that I, that I came up with and maybe it's, me it's not the most politically correct term but um is a intellectual incestuism Mm -hmm. and when we we quite often uh as people we tend to run with the same pack and have the same ideas and keep kind of patting each other on the back and saying the same having the same arguments and saying the same negative things about people or reacting to the same uh current events And what happens is that intellectually, I feel like we depreciate our uh, ideas and our philosophy about life depreciates in value because it's the same, uh, same isolated uh, system. Mm -hmm. And when you branch out, when you actually listen to people that have different viewpoints, you're able to add that information to yours or even see your, the way that your belief system is perceived by somebody else and be like, Oh, that's not actually what I believe, you know, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I understand their viewpoint and why they would, uh, ascertain that from my behavior and my behavior perhaps or what i'm saying doesn't necessarily reflect the actual ideas that i have or that mm-hmm. i want to practice
1: yeah that's a tough one uh bringing bringing those principles into practice you know aligning beliefs and ideals with day-to-day behavior i uh, not that i mean not all that long ago i had to really look at how much stuff i believed That really came was the result of some frustration or some pain or some bad experience. And I had just chosen to be in one of those groups of people because they were similarly seeming to be like on my side, uh, you know, somehow against what I perceived to have hurt me or not accepted me or not included me or whatever. And to realize how little of what I had aligned myself with, I had based on real logical thinking. It was much more about feelings. You know, and feelings that are are very selfish feelings, like feelings of like, you know, this person did or did not acknowledge me or this group of people did or did not acknowledge me or I feel threatened by what this group of people are doing, even if they are not immediately threatening me. And that forms the whole belief system. And so often the debate between people who call themselves liberals and call themselves conservatives is are both of those are groups of people that have made a choice out of fear to belong to some group, you know, a choice out of being prodded there by some social pain or some life pain and and they haven't really put any real thought into their position. There's mm-hmm. just a whole lot of really reactive stuff going on there, you know, based on fear, based on um not understanding, you know, well, the basic fear of the, the unknown cliche going on and not a lot of like Let's lay these things out on the table. Let's explore this thing. Let's break it down. I mean, even even doing that, even dissecting sometimes um, what are what's almost dogma of like these two poles of so-called liberal and so-called conservative, um, so much of it doesn't... It, it was never a logical thing to begin with. It was just a reaction. And I'm losing my train of thought here. Cause I've already said <laughs> well, I, think, that. I think it's a good point. You
2: know, it's actually something that's interesting. I watched... And and I hate to say it, but I I do love watching documentaries on on, uh, Netflix and, you know, my wife and I, especially while we're working, it's kind of nice because you don't necessarily have to watch the entire thing. But there was this show about a uh, neo-Nazi who was getting his tattoos removed uh, that were on his face and his arms that were, you know, representative going to have control with that word Mm -hmm. but you know what i mean so they represent that ideology and he's talked about when he first decided that this wasn't his thing the people that he reached the person that he reached out to was a organization that was combating neo-nazi groups Mm -hmm. and he realized that he actually had a whole lot more in common uh, w- music and his, his interest in music and history and these types of things with the person who was supposedly his adversary when he was, you know, fully 100% into the neo Nazi dogma. Whereas the guys who he was with in that group had very little in common by comparison. Mm-hmm. He didn't realize that until he took himself out of the equation. They were unified by what they hated, not right. what they actually, you know, what their personalities or what their interests were. Yeah. And it's, I was in
1: Southern California for a year and there were a lot of neo Nazi kind of skinhead type guys down there and biker gangs and whatnot. And what I observed is that seemed to come out of the prisons, like, or the jails, like you would fuck up as like any young guy would fuck up, like maybe, maybe get drunk and get a DUI or break into somebody's house or get, you know, I don't know, be a little bit of a delinquent. You wind up in jail and. You, there are Latino gangs in jail, there are black gangs in jail, and you, and you, there are white gangs in jail, and the white gang in jail is a neo-Nazi gang. And you've got to join those guys or you're going to be eaten up by those other guys. So it's kind of like the survival thing. All these dudes come out of prison down there with prison tattoos of Maltese falcons or whatever, you know, the, That eagle and the you know all the various Nazi iconography because it was a survival thing. It was like yeah yeah you
2: you either align with them or you get you got uh, no
1: protection yeah and then you come out of it and you're you still owe those guys you know because that organization just like all the rest of those gangs is not just in the prison there's a there's bridge between you know what's going on in the prison what's going on out in the world but uh, you know so much like that's what I mean, even the, I mean, from what I understand, even like the Nazis themselves in Europe, they're, they're, Germany's hobbled after World War One, and everybody's broke and poor and sh- full of shame, and like, kind of humiliated by World War One, and somebody comes along and says, you can be strong again, and you can be proud again, and all you got to do is take, you know, take all your, this stuff back from these people who've invaded your country, and then get rid of them, and, you know, you can we can be who we're supposed to be, you know, and really play on all the all the suffering of those people to get them to cause more suffering. You know, and uh it seems that it seems to be very often, and maybe I'm stating the obvious here, that it's rare that anybody is having any kind of intelligent conversation about what they're doing. They're just react they're going they're getting swept up in stuff that appeals to whatever their um fears or weaknesses are because they're going to feel strong if they're with these people you know instead of sort of making a conscious choice i mean that's another mark twain thing whenever i find myself in the majority i rethink my position you <laughs> know. that's great uh because you know that's the mob rules mob mentality that kind of thing and and so you know sort of speaking of that i mean we i think that you know the people in power basically the the status quo is maintained by people in power by perpetuating these kinds of stereotypes and encouraging them and encouraging people to uh, group themselves basically the same class of people to group themselves in opposing demographics you know rednecks black people asian people mexican people all the people that are really being exploited by the the you know the very few wealthy people are then you know indoctrinated that the reason that they're there is because of the other poor people because <laughs> of the rich people and so they can fight amongst themselves while and have that blood sport while the rich continue their game. Yeah, and they,
2: and they're typically the ones that are that are the reason that they're in that position to begin with. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to redirect your frustrations from them. It's like, "No, it's not it's not the wealthy. It's not us that are causing these problems. It's it's this other guy who's in your same exact situation who you probably would completely empathize with. Hadn't I not said this, what I'm about to say, but now I'm going to say it, that it's their fault (laughs) (laughs) that you're in this situation. right? And, uh, yeah, it's interesting. And it's interesting how language works. Actually, like, like the, um, red, like the term terminology redneck, and I always like to bring this up because I had no idea uh, about this, but it actually comes from, and I found this out because I did some research about it, the, uh. Appalachian Coal Miner Union, Mm. and the the reason the terminology came up was because it was it became a derogatory term towards uh, coal miners uh, who wore red bandanas on their necks. Oh, really? To show that they were part of the union, and so they're called the Appalachian rednecks. And then, oh, and that's shit. where that's supposed to uh, supposedly began from.
1: I always thought it just was because they're generally agrarian people who would be bent over in the fields, and the back of their neck would be red from being exposed to the sun. But that I like that better. Yeah, <laughs> and are, that's that's your people. They, uh, were your people coal miners, and uh, or
2: just uh, so, some of some of the some generations? Mm-hmm. Not not so much. Not my grandparents, but um my one my great grandfather on my uh grandmother's side he was a uh he was a coal miner and a lot of and that union's still around but now they don't wear red bandanas around their neck they um i found out from my uncle that they tie they'll tie a red ribbon on their uh the antenna of their car to show that they're part of the uh the coal miners union that that's that, talk that's talk about another grown.
1: another thing that's being played by the uh Status quo. It's the unions. I mean, without unions, uh, individual people are exploited literally to death. By you know, in the industrial revolution, whether they were coal miners or factory workers or whatever. I mean, the guy, the guy who owned the factory or owned the coal mine called the shots, and you dealt, you did whatever the hell they said. I mean, there weren't even weekends. There weren't, you know, there was no time off. They didn't even pay you money sometimes in the coal mine. They like paid you company script that you could only spend at their at store, their store. Right? yeah
2: and it's kind of like walmart where like you know you have to buy into their uh their health care plan mm-hmm. Oh, they know, do they have that now they have a health care plan it, it's, it's it's like it's like the store's health cuz mm-hmm. they offer their own health care plan it's not the best care <laughs> probably not
1: but you know, I, I was in a union um for several years in, in Minnesota, the United Food and Commercial Workers uh-huh. Union, cause I worked, at, at, as a labor for Restaurant Depot. And I got into it because I was already in, in Minnesota, it's not a right to work state. So if there's a union and you're working full time, you have to be in the union. Uh huh. And, uh, so I was like, if I'm paying these guys every month, then I'm going to get the most out of this that I possibly can. Cause it was like the amount of money I was making then was a significant amount of money. So I really got into it and I ended up being the, shop steward. And I ended up really appreciating the fact that it was there, even though later it turned out the union I was a part of was a corrupt, actually was a corrupt union. Um, the guys who were leading it were actually, you know, basically mafia extortionists who had started it to keep the real UFCW out of um, restaurant depots and some of these other businesses in, in New York. In fact, that local chapter was for all of the restaurant depots in the whole country when I was working for him. But anyway, despite the fact that those guys were corrupt, I still really appreciated being in this organization where I wasn't just one guy who could be, you know, on a whim be treated a certain way by my superiors, you know. Because like, that happens a lot. It doesn't matter what you do. Somebody just takes a disliking to you and you get railroaded out of there. And I was protected from that. And I started to really appreciate it and started to take personally you know be one of those people that's like why are they always after the unions i mean the unions are fu- are fucked up right you know they're they're problems with the
2: unions just like they're problems with anything else but without them it's way worse you know yeah it and that depends on the union just like anything else just like any institution and depends on you know it depends on the people involved but mm-hmm. you know there's like that famous saying it you know absolute power corrupts absolutely yeah and you know when anybody gets put in a position of power they uh it's quite uh, frequent that they start to abuse that power. Yeah. And I start to, you know, I was listening to the
1: guy from Ukraine talking today. Um, He's just suddenly reappeared after fleeing Ukraine and he's uh, somewhere. I don't remember where, but he's saying I wasn't ousted. I left of my own free will uh, because there was a bunch of hoodlums threatening my family. And, from what they're showing, I mean, this guy was basically raping the country to live a completely lavish lifestyle. And usually when I think of that corrupt thing, I think that the people still know what they're doing and they're trying to keep it secret. You know, like somebody like him, he knows he's being full of shit. He knows he's being uh manipulative. He knows he's lying. He knows that he is stealing from his people. And it's starting to dawn on me that that corruption is—they've actually gone crazy, like this, this <laughs> you know, like that. They really are that, you know, delusional, and and they they are now they actually and they're have thinking a,
2: that they they're entitled to that,
1: right? Like, I mean, that that level of corruption, like their their mind has been corrupted, that they've been they've actually been driven crazy by this power, you know, like they don't they really don't see that what they're doing is wrong. You know, they've just kind of, it's almost like with addiction, you know, that you could keep making excuses for doing another line of Coke, you know, or keep making excuses for, you know, having another drink and like taking whatever money you need to. And if somebody said, hey, I think you got a problem, you might go, hey, mind your own business. I got this under <laughs> yeah, control, yeah. you know? And I think I think the addictive nature of power like that might actually act on people that way to listen to this guy because, I mean, I don't even live there, <laughs> you know, and I can see that a lot of people don't you know we're not pleased with him
2: <laughs> yeah there's some wall street uh, folks that have talked about that the, they're being addicted to making money and they don't they don't even need the money it's just that they're addicted to trying to buy and sell these stocks mm-hmm. to generate the most profit and it's like they're addicted to being able to make that make that extra uh income even though it's completely unnecessary yeah but I actually thought that you were going to go in the direction of the, the, similar to what, what I've heard about the Shahs, where they would, um, there's several accounts when the Shah was in power in Iran where people would, uh, all of a sudden disappear or die and no one would say anything, you know, but everybody, you know, the populace knew, okay, this person just got taken out by mm-hmm. the Shah's men, but, they would, uh, they would say that it was a, you know, it was a robbery, or you know, or there was suicide or something, something of that nature. It was never, um, you know, it was, it was never the the institution's uh, fault. They didn't right. take them out.
1: But it, so did did your family? I mean, did your father have? Did he leave Iran because of the revolution there? Or
2: no, he went. He went to the. To go to school, he went to oh, yeah. go to school in the United States, and that's how I met my mother. They both were in the same, they both were in the same college, and they met each other that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I actually have been part of my research from for this book that I'm working on, The Little Redfish with uh, James Maffette. He, I, I don't know if that's the correct way to pronounce his last name, but um, we um, have been doing research, and uh, I did a lot of research on that time period, the 79 revolution, there's some interesting things. I interviewed some of the people that were involved, Mm -hmm. uh, some, some revolutionaries, some student uh, organizers and what their experiences were like during that time period. And it's really fascinating because what a lot of people don't know is we typically call this the uh, Islamic revolution. The United States is known as that. But at that time period, there was a, there was a few uh, really large uh, communist based organizations um and i don't know if this is because of the proximity to some of the other nations that they that they're surrounded by or if this was you know just the natural course thing or most most leftists probably at the time period were socialists or communists you didn't see a lot of uh, other uh pro- probably not as many anarchists as as you see in the united states but they were the the largest one was a marxist leninist group or one of the two largest ones was a marxist leninist group called uh, the Fadi- the Iranian people's fadian guerrillas and they supposedly had over 70,000 guerrillas not including the people that were uh, res- corresponding with them in the schools that were helping them overthrow the Shah and they were highly integral into in, in that overthrow but we don't hear about that because what actually happened was um a a good majority of those of those gr- uh the members of that guerrilla group supported Khomeini Mm -hmm. and the reason they did that was because they basically were in the camp of anything is better than the Shah right and then there was uh, and if the
1: the Ayatollah can galvanize enough people and we can galvanize enough people maybe together we can get him out of there or the enemy of my enemy is my friend yeah exactly
2: and uh, and they were also having a lot of issues uh, relating to some of the people because there were these secular communist groups and there was a lot of people that were religious but So they, they broke off to the majority and the minority. The majority supported Khomeini. The minority said, we don't support, uh, Khomeini because we don't sup, because of his, you know, ideologies. We're, we're Marxist-Leninists. How can we support this fundamentalist Muslim? And, uh, and then of course, what ended up happening is Khomeini turned on the leftists as soon as he rose to power and was doing the same thing the Shah was doing, which is torturing them and, uh, you know, murdering them executing them and these types of things and so they had to they had to flee um, some of them and and some there's a there's a whole lot of refugees in uh w- which i don't know if they officially classified refugees but a whole lot of people in uh that i've met that are were in europe or in the united states that they're there because of that reason and they they are afraid to go back because of their uh interactions politically but they had some funny stories for me for example um when the uh fundamentalists rose to power, they had all these students that they knew were revolutionaries at the time period, and they wanted and but what they did, which was really hilarious, they had all their photographs for being students and they uh because of Islam, they blocked out their faces <laughs> as if they were wearing uh scarves and <laughs> to cover You're up like, their faces <laughs> so now you have all these women who are revolutionaries whose identities are hidden by the institution that's trying to find them because of their religious beliefs oh
0: my god
1: <laughs> <laughs> I could barely get my head around that it's
2: hilarious but there's so many so many bizarre things like that um, that
1: they're trying to use these pictures to find them but they had covered their faces to, to be in compliance with the modesty standards yeah. so then they couldn't tell who they were <laughs> exactly <laughs>
2: <laughs> so funny
1: it, it, you know, that's the, the, the idiocy of this, but like, of, of so many, uh, attempts to basically control, um, people at their most, um, chaotic. And like, I don't know if this is an age thing for me, but I wouldn't, like, I wouldn't trust most of the people I know who are revolutionaries or anarchists or anything like that to run anything. You know, like to have any sense of how to organize and make something work like a country, you know, um, there there seems to be a lot of it, it, that, that a lot of the energy is just destructive. You know, it's not constructive. It's not about what's the solution. It's not about like we have a better plan. It's more like this is just outrageous what exists right now and it's got to go, you know, and and maybe with the, we're nothing like Chile in the 80s. But I just read that book not that long ago that Isabel Allende wrote called House of the Spirits. And it's kind of a, I mean, it's a, ma- like a Gabriel Garcia Marquez type, uh, magic realism sort of thing. So her family, there are people in her family who are seers and, and there's a, a certain amount of supernatural stuff going on. Uh uh-huh. Which is really, I don't know, part of the story. Maybe to just like, uh, bring you into the story a little to open you to the, possibilities to by in some ways to get around whatever prejudices you might have. Cause, you know, I don't know anything about that culture specifically. Or, um, but what they end up describing happening, um, is that they're, you know, they're, they're leftist revolutionaries and then there's old school aristocracy, you know, the, the 1% of, yeah. of that country. And, uh, and they, they are, you know, for right or wrong, they're the people that basically you know, are the infrastructure of the country. And a group of people come along uh, that are just, they just want to turn this all around, you know, like, you know, the people who are basically the serfs and the vassals of these people that have been living on their land and farming their land, this is probably leftover from Spanish colonial times, basically. Um, those people rise up and turn the tables, they elect somebody that they want into the government and all the private businessmen, all the landowners are the aristocracy basically just bring the economy to a halt so that they can make it look like this guy doesn't know what he's doing, that he's not successfully running the country. And yeah. so everything goes to shit. And then the military takes over, you know, and this is in the eighties,
2: right? And that's how we get Pinochet, that, I think. That, and, that, and that, that model is actually not unusual. I was reading, um, I want to I want to say the book was Third World Revolution and it, it it's frequently referenced by a few uh intellectuals I think uh, Edward Said um references it quite a bit there's a couple of other intellectuals that reference it but they talk about how quite often when these leftist or uh, resistance is successful and they elect some sort of socialist or more liberal leader some of the uh, first world nations will do things like uh, boycott their major export or something like that so that their economic infrastructure fails. And then they get to say, you see, right. socialism doesn't work. And then they they uh, they stage a coup and elect the, the puppet of their choice.
1: And I have to admit I'm a little bit, I don't think this is an excuse not to seek change, but I am wary of that possibility in trying to do anything dramatic you know that like it or i mean we are controlled i mean yet the one percent you know the solution i certainly don't want to see what's happening in ukraine happen yeah, here. Yeah. you know um and then it, so there's there's first physical confrontation bloody confrontation and then there's mob shit going on and there are people who are just taking advantage of the chaos to do whatever the fuck they want and
2: yeah, that is, I mean, it's, yeah, it's definitely not the ideal solution, <laughs> but, but there are some, there are some good models out there. There's, um, there's this great model that one of the models that I like the most as far as infrastructure, because you mentioned how a lot of uh your revolutionary friends, a lot of anarchists tend to be talking about the way things don't work rather than an alternate system. And there's this group in Spain, the anarcho-syndicalists, and they're, inst- they uh, organized a bunch of workers, in this uh, system that was really effective. And what's interesting is a lot of their writings, they actually are very uh, meticulous in how things were working and how things weren't working and what their actual failures were. They were fairly, at least it's seemingly upfront about where things weren't working out. And the reason, the main reason that they fail were actually because of communists going in and saying, you're not doing it the way we want mm. and then attacking them and basically destroying their uh, infrastructure which was a pretty interesting system and the gist of it from what I understand from from the text that I've read is that you have a group of individuals and they alternate a representative not a leader but a representative of this group and the representative goes and talks to other groups and comes back and relays the information and this is constantly shifting and the people that are that uh, that go, to, uh, represent them and may make a decision on the group's behalf is, uh, directly affected by the decisions that they're making. So the idea is that, uh, they, they'll be making decisions that'll benefit the group as a whole because it's gonna directly affect them, not just, um, not just the group, which is mm-hmm. the problem of, handi- of course, having management or having an owner because their decisions might only affect the people working there and not, uh not necessarily themselves
1: yeah and the thing that i've noticed is most of the i mean i've only worked for one large corporation but i've noticed that the most of the attention that people are paying is up the ladder at their whoever their boss is and they're more concerned about showing whatever whoever that boss is what that boss wants to see whatever that boss is fixated on you know like if it's a spreadsheet that shows this then they need to they need to be doing the things that make the right things appear in the columns on that spreadsheet and so they're constantly they're basically sort of thinking about the audience of this boss all the time instead of how to best run the business you yeah know? that's true
2: too <laughs> yeah, yeah the other business sometimes suffer because of uh metrics know. basically yeah
1: you know, what, what people, that, how much faith people have in the numbers and what the, the numbers don't lie and all that kind of stuff. And very rarely is it like, you know, we, we need to let this guy alone so they could develop an organic system of accountability where people aren't just showing up for a paycheck. They're also recognizing that while they're at work, they're part of a system, like a human system, a community, you know, uh, where their behavior towards each other matters you know, and actually could make them their own job more pleasant if they were affecting a more positive and cultivating a more positive relationship with people around them. They might, everybody might actually make more money and rise and be successful if, if they're actually investing themselves personally in what they're doing as, as, you know, cause you're spending most of your life there anyway. So it's actually the most, probably the most important community you belong to is the one where you're making your living. And, um, most of the time, people are not thinking like that. They're thinking about isolated individual uh, metrics of performance, you know, uh, productivity versus you know salary and work accomplished, and or whatever pay versus output and all that kind of stuff. And, and things that there's so much that lies outside of that that actually directly affects that stuff, but you just don't see people thinking like that. And that does. It, the big picture and how everything goes together is what everybody should be looking at, whether they're an anarchist or a, um, a leftist or a conservative is that nobody gets to have what they have in a vacuum. Like they're, they're all dependent on each other. There's this interdependence of society and the economy and you can't eradicate one thing and think that you're still going to have what you have, you know?
2: Yeah. Which is, which is great. But it, and it, the The problem that I've I've seen, and you know, I'm, I'm, I don't claim to be some sort of anarchist theorist, but I do like that that system a lot, and I do like the ideal. I really like the anarchist. What is a-
1: the anarchist ideal? I mean, I
2: well, there's so many different types, just like everything, and that mm-hmm. I think that's like the biggest, you know, problem with the perception of how that how that potential structure would work, because when the more that I learn and the more people i started i was actually pretty involved with a bunch of leftist organizations for for quite a while when i was when i was in college and a little bit afterwards not as involved but um it introduced me to a lot of things and so there's like all these hyphenated versions of every single political ideology you don't realize that it's just like with sex in christianity each Mm -hmm. sect has a different perception of how to for them is how to interpret the bible in this case how to interpret this particular way for human interaction to happen which is also dogma yeah, some kind. Yeah, mm-hmm. which yeah, if if you see it as ideology versus philosophy, which is you know what we were discussing,
1: that uh, well, the things aren't separate. Not to interrupt you, but I was just thinking about this a little while ago. I mean, the majority of of organized religions organize in order to organize people and to create a state and to create a law and to create a political system and to create a way of getting people to behave. Not just to control them in the sense of manipulating them, but to get them to control themselves so that they won't be doing what their nature has them wanting to do most of the time. Especially if you look at the Middle Eastern countries where people are living nomadically and there isn't even a grid to hold you together. There's not a, there weren't, there wasn't a city state. Existing, there's just caravans and people setting up and uh, without that, all of that stuff, the mechanism of the state, there's just what everyone has to believe, (laughs) you know, about what's valuable and the purpose of it gets lost. It becomes just. Like, it's a sin to do this. Well, actually, it's practically fucked up if this guy screws his neighbor's wife, because that's going to throw the tribe that is traveling through the desert, totally dependent on each other to survive, into turmoil, you know? Yeah. And and it's really better if the women just do cover themselves while we're hanging out trying to do this so everybody can stay focused on what they're doing instead of um looking at the women all the time, you know? And so, you know, this, this, this ideology does, um, religion is an ideology. It is, it, it is a way that people had come up with in order to, to, you know, find order, you know, in, in a human system. And that isn't any, that much different from a government. You know, it's, it just has a divine, some kind of divine author as opposed to a, um, a thinker.
2: Yeah. That's it. where, but, but that's where I think that it's a little problematic because you have a text that you cannot edit. Right. And so it can evolve. The interpretations can change, which is why, you know, you have all the sex. So I guess to some degree it's a little organic. But, you know, what's written in that text you're supposed to believe is divine and you have to follow without change. But we change. treat the
1: fucking Constitution like that.
2: Yeah. You yeah. Know? Well, it's it's just <laughs> terrible too. Yeah, and and I agree. I mean, that's what the amendments were for. The amendments existed because it wasn't perfect, and it should we should continue. And that's to what amend all these sects of Christianity are yeah.
1: amendments. You know, they're they are amending aspects of the uh existing um canon that 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 they don't see as working or being practical. Or that's true. Or, or I never thought of it that way. <laughs> making sense? You know, I mean, you've got. I mean, but the thing is, is that it, it's bizarre that. So, you know, and, and Bill Nye was talking to this, the creationist museum guy, and I don't know if you and I talked about this at the party, but. Maybe
2: it's Ken Ham, I think is his name. Yeah. He
1: kept saying to him, he's like, I don't know. I don't have a problem with the Bible, but I don't understand why you would rely on it for science when it's been translated so many times and edited so many times. Yeah. What we have now in the King James version is nothing, is not essential in any way. It was like decided upon in the middle ages as the can- the canon you know the fixed thing the can it had been edited quite a few times yeah and prior so to ma- that and-,
2: and there's so many apostles books that we that aren't included in the text there's a there's a couple of friends of mine that actually went to seminary school and after the more that they learned the more the less they believed uh, right. they in christianity which is kind of interesting and i've heard and i mean i don't know i mean might make some people upset but from what knowledge I have is that it seems like quite often the people that, at least maybe it just might be the people I run with, but a lot of times you either uh, don't believe because you found out so much information that it, it no longer makes logical sense to you. Right. Or you do believe you start up your ministry and do, do that. Or some some people kind of take the middle path and they might not believe it wholeheartedly, but they feel like the, the teachings, like you said, are important for people to prevent them from killing each other and so they still have a ministry even though they're not wholehearted believers well the people that are
1: really I I think really in in any religion whether it's Islam or uh, Christianity or Judaism or Buddhism or whatever um, seem to be saying the same thing about compassion you know and the ultimate boil it down to do don't do to somebody else what you wouldn't want them to do to you, you know, and, and to think about how someone else would feel prior to committing to some course of action. That's the ultimate um, message of all of these faiths. And they, to me, as a, like an intellectual who does operate on a type of faith but is a non-dogmatic, non-organized religion, I mean, I'm not into anything that I'm buying hook, line, and sinker. I'm constantly listening for the resonant truth in things. And I think it's available in just about anything. I mean, I can hear some one of those crazy tent revival guys speaking and find something in there that applies to me, you know. And it applies in the sense that, the you know, like a Buddhist would say or whatever, that the majority of suffering is caused by you really seeking your own desire you know, following your own desire, going after your appetites at the expense of all others around you, at desires that can never be quenched, you can never really get enough, you know, like these stockbroker guys we're talking about, or um, I forget the example I was talking about before that, but that the all seem to be saying that the, uh, the pursuit of trying to get enough is, is a dead end, it's like r- where all the evil comes from you know there's just this blind uh, pursuit of more you know and uh to really see your debt to the people around you and see that you belong to the people around you and you belong to this big picture and you belong to creation and this whole universe and you better do something positive and constructive to that that's ultimately the lesson of all of those things and to get hung up on the individual myths and the individual stories i think is a waste of time i i don't find Um, I don't take the Bible literally, and I don't take—I haven't read the Quran. I don't, and none of those books, like I don't, are meant to be taken literally. They're meant to be like koans. They're all meant to be stories that are like a tree falls in the woods and it does does doesn't make a sound kind of things to get you out of your typical subjective experience of life. You know,
2: that's actually what I really love about Joseph Campbell and the way that he he digests uh, religious texts and seeing it more as a philosophy but i also do see in some of these um groups that do follow them they then use the text in a way where just like you said where if you're nomadic you have your own isolated system mm-hmm. and you have your beliefs and so the beliefs within their uh group on that they have no uh when they interact with other groups it no longer pertains to the outside group it only pertains to the group that they have to directly interact right. with. For, the chosen forever. people. Exactly. Right. And then that's when you end up with things like in the Bible where, uh, where God asked the Israelites to commit genocide essentially. Right. You know, because the, those people are the heathens. Those are the ones worshipping false idols. They're no longer part of the system that we have these specific rules for because, you know, it's okay to kill them, but it's not okay to kill one of us.
1: Yeah, not to act like I got all the of- answers but the more that i have an open mind about spirituality the more i see just philosophy in it you know uh there are but there is always you know just like the corruption of power the corruption of the cult of personality many people are not comfortable being handed the keys to their own cage they would rather just get inside, stay in the cage where they at least know where everything is and be comfortable. And and they just join some sect or denomination or cult or,
2: or whatever or philosophy or political ideology because you see it there too. You know, yeah, you don't want to you don't want to admit that it's there's something wrong with it. <laughs> and that well, you can more you can than that too that, that
1: there's there's there are so many possibilities when it comes to telling stories and there's so many possibilities when it comes to articulating. This stuff And it becomes overwhelming. But the truth is, is that the truth is very simple. You know, like the, the basics are very simple, but they, they're almost too simple. They're not satisfying in their simplicity. People want it complicated. They want like awful stories about atrocities committed that these people are always bad and our people are always good. And it's amazing the amount of people who think that about their particular group of people. And yet, no, there is no concise group of people you know i mean you're not a a concise you know you've you've got iranian influence you've got west virginia in you and that's far more common really in this world that people have been this mixture of stuff from all over the globe all along and there is no static culture there is no static group of people there never has been there's never been a set group of people with some original anything You know, I mean, there may have been a small group of humans, but I bet you even that small group of humans had a hard time agreeing on shit. And that's why they moved away from each other. (laughs) You know?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that concludes part one. Turn the page. More coming up with that conversation with the Jan. In a couple of days, we're gonna get two this week. I know, it's so cool. Hope you enjoyed that first part. Some big rants in there. If you like rants, you're in luck. I think some more coming. But uh hey, yeah, that's ebbs and flows, the art of the conversation. Sometimes it's uh it's preaching, not conversating. Anyway, um, hey y'all, how y'all doing, my friends out there? You know, you can uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Zizmos, Um, and of course, you know, this stuff is on iTunes, and uh, the link. I always post the link to iTunes on the website at the bottom of the recording, on um, where I post each of these and on my page you can also find a place to donate a little cash if you like we always it's always helpful it's not really about the money as much as the uh, message in a bottle every now and then i hear from one of you that you're digging this and you know what it's worth it if one person's digging it seriously i'm not just saying that Uh, it really means a lot to me but um you can also say it with cash That'd be cool too, but I don't really, you know. I don't want you to think I'm begging for money. It's not like public radio kind of stuff. It's just, you uh, know, be nice, a little token, a token of depreciation. appreciation. But you know, that's like It's okay. I'll be all right. I'll just starve. Oh, there way be nothing. Mm-hmm. All right. Good night or good day or whatever time of day it is that you're listening to this. Until next time, Namaste, motherfuckers.